Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mary. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, I am so thrilled that we are welcoming back one of the greatest privacy experts, wonderful attorney. His name is Lee Tian. He's been on our show before talking about very important issues of privacy. And tonight we're going to be speaking again with a senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Lee Tian specializes in free speech law, including intersections with intellectual property and privacy law. Before joining the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Lee was a sole practitioner specializing in the Freedom of Information Act litigation. Lee has published articles on children's sexuality and information technology, anonymity, surveillance, and the First Amendment status of publishing computer software. Lee received his undergraduate degree in psychology from Stanford University, where he was very active in journalism at the Stanford Daily. After working as a news reporter at the Tacoma News Tribune for a year, Lee went back to law school at Bolt Hall, University of California at Berkeley. Lee also did graduate work in the program in jurisprudence and social policy at UC Berkeley. He does wonderful things, and you can learn more about him at our website at www.kuci.org slash privacypiracy, and also at www.eff.org. Lee, thank you so much for joining us again this year. Uh, My pleasure, Mari. Well, Lee, why don't you tell my audience a little bit about the great work that the Electronic Frontier Foundation does? Well, EFF, we're based here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Our office is in San Francisco. We're a nonprofit, public interest, civil liberties group. And we work primarily in three areas in, uh, with respect to consumers' rights in intellectual property, uh, also consumer free speech, and, of course, consumer or citizen privacy. I work mostly on free speech and privacy stuff, and in the privacy area, that means working on in Congress or uh, against the Patriot Act. We sued AT&T and the federal government over the uh, Bush administration warrantless wiretapping program. We've been trying to stop the spread of RFID chips in ID. We've been trying to uh, slow down the rise of biometrics in society. All sorts of things like that. That's the sort of stuff that uh, I work on here at EFF. Well, let my audience know, for those people who don't know what our RFIDs are, why don't you explain a little bit about what they are and why it's a privacy issue? Well, an RFI, RFID stands for Radio Frequency ID Technology. And so what it is is basically a computer chip with an antenna. And what it used to be used for and still is used for, is for tracking goods. They'll put an RFID tag 
which is the Chip Plus antenna, onto, say, a case of, of uh, Campbell's soup cans or something like that. And that allows them remotely, because it's radio, uh, to sort of ping uh, inventory and say, oh, okay, that's this and that's that. It's like a barcode, in a sense, that uh, you can talk to, or it talks to you. Uh, and uh, the problem we've got with privacy is that a lot of folks want to put these kinds of RFID tags into goods and things that we carry with us, uh, into clothing, uh, and most dangerously, into government ID documents. Uh, currently, for instance, the U.S. Uh, passport uh, contains an RFID tag. A lot of credit cards have RFID tags. Um, states are putting uh, RFID tags into driver's licenses. And some of these are very long-range. That is, they can be read from 15 to 20, maybe even 30 feet away. And whatever information they broadcast can be picked up by an off-the-shelf uh, kind of RFID reader, which is really pretty easy to uh, capture. So if you're walking around with a bunch of things that have RFID tags on it, you're basically transmitting a bunch of either information uh, or numbers around that uh, people can use to uniquely identify me, uh, identify you. Um, you know, for instance, we have this big debate over whether or not RFID tags should be in people's driver's licenses. And in California, um, we were, uh, so far, they are not doing that. But, uh, you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter. Um, I don't want her to be carrying around a driver's license that contains, that is broadcasting, you know, her name, her address, all that kind of information uh, out to anyone who's got a reader that can read it because it's not very hard to find those. So, you know, we regard RFID in identity documents in particular, things that you really can't live without carrying on your person all the time, as being something that really facilitates people being tracked by, without their knowledge. And, uh, and that just seems like a very, very bad thing for, for personal privacy. So RFIDs are very frightening right now about how they might be used, but what kinds of cases are you involved with right now? Well, the uh, major cases that I'm involved in right now have to do with government surveillance. Uh, as you and uh, your listeners probably know, uh, back in, during the, uh, right after 9-11, uh, the NSA, the National Security Agency, began to wiretap Americans' uh, phones and other kinds of electronic communications uh, without any kind of court order or warrant. This was revealed or leaked by the New York Times back in December 2005. And we, along with other uh, civil liberties groups like the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights, filed lawsuits against uh, the carriers. And then more recently, we filed a lawsuit against uh, the government trying to uncover, but really more importantly, trying to stop uh, this kind of uh, unlawful unconstitutional communication surveillance from occurring. And how would you describe the current state of privacy law in the United States today with all the technology that's going on and all the possibility of surveillance? Uh, what, what is our state of privacy law to protect us? I guess I would say that the current state of privacy law is well behind the state of sort of practical surveillance. And I say that really for two reasons. Uh, first, uh, the surveillance technologies themselves are far more sophisticated than uh, they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so the law hasn't really kept up with the changes in the uh, technology. The second reason is not so much technological, but uh, social. That is, the... Uh, the way that the technologies of tracking and surveillance are being deployed uh, is very, very different today. 20 to 25 years ago, uh, if the police, for instance, or if anybody wanted to track you or wanted to do surveillance on you, they actually had to sort of target you and focus on you and say, we're going to uh, 
listen to your phone call. So we are going to plant uh, some kind of a device uh, on you to make sure we know where you are. Today, because of the nature of the technologies themselves, whether it's cell phones or our use of the Internet, our use of credit cards and the uh, kinds of, uh, and the way our payments are recorded, or even using uh, Fast Track or Easy Pass or various uh, electronic toll collection, what, we, what we're seeing really is that information about your activities and your movements is routinely collected and routinely uh, stored by the folks we do business with as well as by the government. And so much more of the surveillance is, is every day. And so instead of saying, okay, we're going to pick you out and then try to figure out what you're all about, instead it's, oh, well, we ha- it's in a database somewhere, and we just have to collate or collect or get that data, put it together, and then look at it. So it's much more a matter of looking at historical records about what you've been doing uh, all along than it is about saying, oh, we're now going to turn our attention to you. So those two big changes, uh, the technology outpacing the law and uh, the sort of routine everyday surveillance are the big problems today. Right. And how about the Fourth Amendment? I mean, is that helping us at all with any of these new changes about, you know, search and seizure? I mean, what what about that? Well, it's, that's a... I guess the short answer is that the Fourth Amendment still helps. It's better than nothing, but it's not. Uh, it's certainly not a really not a silver bullet here. And again, there's a there's a there's a particular aspect of of Fourth Amendment law that uh, two problems with Fourth Amendment law right now that sort of relate to what we were what I was just talking about uh, in terms of the technology outstripping the law and the sort of routine collection of records. So the first is that uh, Fourth Amendment law has always distinguished between sort of what's a private place and what's a public place. And, uh, and so the technologies back in the old days when Fourth Amendment law was, was more naive, I would say, just assumed that you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't have surveillance devices, say, in public. You wouldn't have video surveillance cameras in uh, on public streets. Instead, uh, if the police wanted to watch you, then they would have to, to follow you and use a camera to, to track you with a telephoto lens. Now, there's a lot more surveillance in public, and yet, in general, uh, Fourth Amendment law doesn't recognize any kind of expectation of privacy uh, in public. The second part uh, has to correspond directly with what I uh, said earlier about the uh, about records and collection of your routine activities. Uh, the Fourth Amendment gives very little protection to records that others hold about you. If that information were in your home, in your own computer, at home, that would be one thing. But if that information is in your email account at, you know, at Gmail, or if it's in a bank's records about you, then it's Fourth Amendment protections are very, very weak. And so, again, sort of shifts in technology and shifts in the way that information about us are held in society have uh, sort of conspired to make the Fourth Amendment much less powerful for us. Right. So there's a big hole there. I mean, basically, so what we're going through is making that the Fourth Amendment really kind of is outdated for all of the technology that's going on now. Well, that's right. There's some, uh, there are, is some judicial recognition in court cases uh, that the Fourth Amendment needs to evolve somewhat. We have seen, for instance, in cases involving uh, police tracking of uh, people and cars using uh, GPS, global positioning satellite system, that uh, courts are, some courts, usually in the state system, who are not bound by the federal Fourth Amendment, have actually said, well, that kind of tracking is just so different from the kind of tracking that people thought about 25 years ago that, yes, we're going to say that the the police actually need probable cause or warrant in order to track someone in public. So that's one thing. But the bigger thing is that in the intervening years, as the Fourth Amendment has weakened, uh, then a lot of statutes, uh, either by Congress or at the state level, 
have been passed to specifically uh, try to compensate for some of the uh, Fourth Amendment's weaknesses. And so we have you know, specific laws about health privacy or specific laws about uh, ISP and telephone privacy or video rentals and so forth and so on. How about the federal U.S. privacy law, you know, that deals with governmental privacy, the fact that any there weren't supposed to be any secret databases held by governmental agencies. How are they getting around that? Well, the Privacy Act of 1974, which you know was a great, great uh, piece of legislation uh, when it was first enacted, uh, has also sort of been uh, outstripped by events, I guess I would say. It's not so much technology as it is by the changes in the world. And uh, one of the, there were one of the weaknesses in the Privacy Act when it was first enacted was that it had special kinds of, of uh, treatment for law enforcement and for uh, national security-related systems of records. Uh, so you know, they, back in 74, they were concerned with the kinds of privacy issues that might come up uh, in the context of, say, Social Security or Medicare and all sorts of government uh, benefits programs that were gathering a lot of information about people's lives. They were not, it was not so much intended to uh, address, say, FBI surveillance or uh, anything like that. Uh, in the post-9-11 era, uh, we've seen the federal government really take advantage of these loopholes for national security and uh, law enforcement systems of records. And so we have all sorts of terrorism-related databases or uh, law enforcement-related databases uh, that, uh, and even in the area of national security, then you've got that homeland security concept, which means that much of what the Department of Homeland Security or the Transportation Security uh, Administration then can take advantage of these exceptions to Privacy Act protection and uh, escape a lot of accountability. I think a lot of people don't realize that there are big data brokers like LexisNexis and others that gather tremendous amount of information about us and how easy is it for the government to access those databases? It's actually quite uh, easy for the government to access uh, these commercial databases. It just depends on how they want to do it. For instance, we know for a fact that the FBI uh, has a paid subscription, essentially, to uh, ChoicePoint. And uh, ChoicePoint's one of the very big uh, data brokers, they, they offer all sorts of data uh, subscription services to folks in uh, all walks of business, and the FBI has gone in and gotten accounts, and they use that uh, as a way of augmenting their more sort of official law enforcement ways of, of getting information. This has become uh, quite common, uh, and it's not something that the privacy laws ever really contemplated. And uh, so there's an enormous amount of that kind of data flowing into the government now. So the Privacy Act, that the the portion that says that the government won't have secret databases, are they getting around it by having these databases that they purchase uh, from Axiom or LexisNexis ChoicePoint? Is that how they're getting around it? Or are they just saying, no, we have other laws now that allow us because of 9-11? How, how is that working? Well, 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 it's both. I mean, the, clearly being able to use, uh, essentially outsource, their, being able to use a commercial data broker is a way for them to have access to information that they're not necessarily holding themselves. So that's point one. But point two, then there are also databases they can have uh, in the terrorism area or in the law enforcement area or in the homeland security area that simply are exempt from many of the requirements of the Privacy Act. So whether or not you can, you know, you have a right to access uh, your records under the Privacy Act, that you are not uh, going to be able to exercise that right, say, with respect to the, uh, the no-fly list or something like that. So you know, the you no know, fly list is a good example of a kind of database that uh, really 
escapes the uh, sort of database regulation and oversight uh, segments of the, uh, of the Privacy Act. There's also crime uh, databases that the FBI and the Department of Justice maintain, which they only actually, in the last five to ten years, decided that they would unilaterally exempt from some of the uh, oversight and accountability requirements of the Privacy Act. They, uh, for instance, one of them is this requirement that uh, you know the records should be accurate, which is one of those duh kinds of uh, <laughs> uh, aspects of the database, right? <laughs> right? And, yet, uh, and yet, the Justice Department officially said uh, that I think it's the NC, National Crime Information Center database, but I, I'm not exactly sure. But this database that uh, is used and sucks in a lot of data from uh, states and localities in terms of law enforcement, uh, that they couldn't make they were not. They did not want to be under that accuracy obligation because it was too hard. So they exempted themselves. Um, you know, which now, is, isn't the NCIC though? Isn't that like a fingerprint database? So uh, that's a little bit different. I mean, no, not... no, we're talking about criminal history records. Oh, criminal history records. Okay, okay, because the NCIC with the with the fingerprints is a little bit safer. At least you can go and have your fingerprints taken and say this isn't me. You know, the person who did this. I'm thinking of identity theft, how, how we have been able to clear some people because their fingerprints didn't match the fingerprints of the perpetrator. So right. that's easier than when somebody uses the name Lee Tian and they have, you know, done all sorts of things that you never could even think of doing, you know. That, the, the that's FB, different. Yeah, yeah, I'm not aware of any of, of accuracy concerns with the FBI's uh, IAFIS uh, fingerprint database right. that may have some problems, but it's certainly not one of the usual poster children for, uh, for bad government databases. I think partly that's because it's used so much for actual identification that comes into, that goes into the court system that uh, they have a, you know, they have a, a sort of a constant feedback loop in terms of how well it's working. Well, then we ha we've had problems that I've dealt with with victims of identity theft who have been criminally apprehended because their name was in this database. But then when we give the fingerprints, we can at least uh, differentiate the victim from the perpetrator. So that's a little bit different. But what you're talking about is a database that says that I can't fly because my name is similar to somebody else that was a terrorist in some other country or something. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my name is Dave. Your name is David Nelson, and there's someone with a name like that on the list. So everyone whose name is David Nelson is uh, sort of looked on with special scrutiny. What are you doing about that? Is EFF doing anything about that? Because I, I get so many people that complain to us that they can't get out of that uh, watch list. They can't get off that watch list. That is an issue that we were that EFF was very involved in uh, several years ago. Um, I have to say, unfortunately, that neither we nor anyone else uh, was really able to do anything with that issue. And uh, you know, it sort of went above our pay grade when folks like Ted Kennedy uh, were affected by it. It was so obvious to everyone that you know, if you're flagging a sitting U.S. senator right. uh, as someone who can't fly, you have a problem. <laughs> so, right. so, so it hasn't. The problem with the no-fly list hasn't been that people don't recognize that it's a problem and that it doesn't work very well. The problem is, uh, as a matter of political juice, you might say there you end up with kind of a third rail problem, just like trying to fix the healthcare system or trying to fix the social security system is at some point some of these things get they get bad ideas get in and then everyone wants to make wants to change it but you can't get a consensus to of what to change it to there's an old saying that in Washington you can never defeat a bad idea without an alternative and if you don't have a workable, an alternative that you can show is clearly superior, then 
want. DC tends to stick with something that works poorly and that lives for a long time just because you can't get, you know, 60 senators to agree that this other thing is unambiguously uh, better. And because <laughs> airplanes and terrorism after 9-11 is such a, is such a hot-button issue, you know, people have a tendency to lose their rationality when they talk about that. And, you know, you get a lot of this, well, yeah, it doesn't work very well, but better safe than sorry. And, you know, all we're doing is inconveniencing, you know, these, we're inconveniencing these honest people who aren't threats, but, gee, you know, that's better than making a mistake and letting someone who's actually a terrorist on the plane. That's the kind of thinking that tends to dominate this area, and I think most Americans wouldn't agree with that, but, you know, it's, 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 it's definitely a political mess, and uh, I wish I could say that we, were able, we had either been successful on that, or at least that we were continuing to fight it, but it has, we have found that our resources are more, I think we, we can get more out of our work by doing other things. Right, right. We're speaking with Lee Tian, who is one of the top privacy experts in the state of California. He is a senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he is very well-versed on all the issues of privacy. Right now in Congress, they're talking about the Real ID Act. Could you explain to my audience what is the Real ID Act? Well, sure, Amari. The uh, Real ID Act was passed in May 2005, and it attempted to create... I guess there's no nice way to put it, a national ID system uh, by uh, having standard federal standards for all state driver's licenses and ID cards. Uh, so it was intended to both to do really two main things. Uh, you wanted to standardize the cards, and you wanted to have, and it wanted to have an interconnected system of databases that anyone could check or that any law enforcement officer uh, or government could check to see whether or not a person really was uh, who they said they were. And uh, this was, uh, as I said, uh, passed in May of 2005 and was supposed to be implemented in May 2008, and uh, it hasn't actually been. Okay. So what kind of information about us is going to be stored on these real ID cards? Well, the, uh, the cards themselves are going to have uh, pretty much the, the usual kind of, of information that uh, you would expect to uh, be on the card, like the uh, name, uh, your birth date, uh, your gender, ID number. There's also going to be uh, more interestingly, a digital photograph that's intended to be, uh, you know, sort of machine-readable, and a common machine-readable technology uh, approved by the Homeland Security Department that would uh, contain the same information as on the face of the card so that uh, you'd be able to scan it in. Now, would that photograph be biometric? Would it be that precise, that it would be biometric information that would be, like, with numbers and all that? Or <laughs> Well, that's, that's right. It's intended to be a, it's supposed to be a digital photograph, and uh, you know, I've been working in the, on, in the real ID area, and so they, what, I, what I can tell you is that the standards that they're using for these images is definitely a biometric quality uh, image and uh, one that conforms to the sort of international standards for travel documents and, and so forth and so on. In fact, here in the state of California, even without talking about real ID, the, the DMV for since December has been trying to get funding uh, in order to buy uh, a full-fledged biometric facial recognition system for the DMV so that when you have your picture taken, for the driver's license, it will be a biometric image, and they will intend to have a full uh, database of biometric facial images that they'll be able to use for uh, all sorts of uh, DMV purposes. So that's something that uh, we regard as uh, very dangerous to privacy, 
and uh, uh, EFF along with ACLU and uh, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and other groups have been working very hard to try to prevent uh, the DMV from doing this, at least not without some serious, serious uh, public debate. So help my audience understand why there are privacy concerns with regard to this digital photograph as opposed to a regular photograph. What could happen that they have no clue about? Well, I think the, the, uh, the first and most important reason why biometric facial images are different from or have more privacy uh, concerns around them than the ordinary photograph is that they're designed to be used by machines, by computers, all sorts of automated systems for uh, doing for doing recognition the idea and identification. The idea is, well, we're going to be able to use that image and decide whether or not you're really you. Um, now, this has a huge number of implications, mainly uh, because it will be uh, a machine process. Uh, there is there's a funny dynamic, I think, for privacy around biometrics, and I, and uh, and it's sort of a kind of like uh, two sides of the coin. On the one side, we people think that biometrics identification is extremely accurate, and they have a tendency to trust what the uh, computer spits out. So, you know, if you think about the best analogy, analogy would be to like a fingerprint ID. You know, if someone if the if someone publicizes that, or you someone knows that, gee, your fingerprints were found at a particular place. The bird, the idea that maybe that wasn't you, maybe somebody made a mistake. That's really really hard to uh, to, to squelch. So you have a very very strong presumption stronger than there normally would be, uh, that the identification is accurate and they've placed you there. Um, the flip side of it, though, is that, in fact, biometric identification in most cases is, has a lot of accuracy problems. Um, it is indeed possible to have, to, to use, have biometrics be very accurate, but then you also have a, a lot of other problems because it won't uh, it won't work very fast. And so what happens is there's always a trade-off between the accuracy of biometrics and the speed of biometrics. And that leads to a lot of uh, privacy problems. One false good positives, false negatives. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. the, the best example I think that people would know about is uh, there's, the, there's a lawyer up in Oregon. His name right. is Brandon Mayfield. Um, his, the FBI was investigating the, uh, a bombing in Madrid, and they believed that, his, that the fingerprints they found on some of the evidence belonged to Mr. Mayfield. Uh, and Mr. Mayfield, as it turned out, was uh, Muslim. He, uh, he had converted and was uh, uh, of the Islamic faith. And for reasons that I think we could all guess, they tended to think that that was made sense, and they fixated on him as the Madrid bomber. Uh, even though there was no evidence indicating that he'd ever been there uh, or in that time period, eventually uh, that the uh, Spanish authorities found the correct people. Uh, Mr. Mayfield's fingerprints were not on, the, uh, on this evidence, but, the, but human fingerprint examiners, and this is not even machine examiners, Human fingerprint examiners at the FBI, up until very late, believed that he was their guy. And as a result, he was subjected to, uh, he and his family were subjected to uh, covert surveillance uh, as a uh, result of this mistaken fingerprint uh, identification. Um, so that's, that's sort of a cautionary tale. You know, most people are not going to be in that kind of, are not going to face that kind of a, an issue. But, you know, there are lots of other problems with biometrics in the privacy area as well. And ID theft and the risks of compromise are the other. You know, you can get a new, if your password is compromised, you can get a new one. If your, uh, if your 
you lose your keys, you can rekey a lock. Uh, but if if your identity is being verified via biometrics, you know, like your thumbprint or something, you know, you can't change it, and uh, it's compromised with respect to, uh, you know, pretty much forever. You have to use something else. But biometrics has a lot of problems being used as any kind of a uh, security precaution you know, and uh, raises a lot of, of other privacy issues simply because, and it's, I think this is still the main point, because they unique tend to uniquely identify you um, more than anything else, then it's very hard to shake the stigma or shake the suspicion that attaches to you when uh, biometrics is used, even though biometrics is actually quite imperfect. Well, getting back to this real ID card, um, you had said before that you needed to have common machine-readable technology. So what exactly does that mean, and will it be encrypted? Well, the, uh, this means this has meant different things to different people, and, and even over the history of, of real ID. At the, when we first started working on the real ID issue, we assumed and we're very afraid that the common machine-readable technology would be uh, RFID in driver's licenses in, in any real ID-compliant uh, card. And uh, from what we were able to learn, this was indeed a very big part of what folks inside of the Homeland Security Department wanted. Uh, but there were a number of bumps on the road, you might say, the, uh, when RFID was put into the, into the State Department passport, uh, there was a, uh, a public controversy because it appeared that even though the uh, State Department believed that they could not be read at a distance, that there was evidence that, in fact, uh, at some of the State Department's passport, e-passport trials, uh, that folks were able to read the uh, passport RFID tag from much greater distance than the uh, State Department had admitted. And then uh, also there were problems with RFID in the U.S. Visit system. Uh, U.S. Visit uh, is a system that essentially gives a piece of a document, an I-94 card, to foreign persons when they come into the United States. They're supposed to uh, have it while they're here, and then they... Uh, you know, give it back or, or relinquish it when they leave the United States. And so these were also embedded with RFID tags, and uh, uh, DHS was testing them in a, a pilot program, and it simply didn't work very well. They had to, to give it up because uh, there were too many problems trying to uh, read these. So RFID had some bad, had some PR and, honestly, just simple performance hiccups uh, along the way. And so in the uh, current supposedly final are real ID regulations, the machine-readable technology of choice for uh, real ID is, in fact, not RFID, but instead a two-dimensional barcode. Uh, and uh, this is some, one of the options that EFF and a lot of other privacy groups said, if you're going to use a machine-readable technology, you should use something like a barcode or a 2D barcode, because the big difference between that and RFID is that you can't really read a barcode or any kind of optical machine-readable technology without my knowledge. I have to take that card out. I have to and show it. And the machine it has to read it. Yeah, right there. Right. Yeah. It yeah. can't be read through my, through my wallet, through my pocket, through your purse. You know, that's, that's the big issue with RFID is that it's so sure. susceptible to a covert read and so the nature of a 2D of an optical uh, machine readable technology is that it automatically has a sort of consent, you know, acknowledging notice and consent dimension to it. So, did the privacy advocates ask that it be encrypted? What about that? Well, we did, uh, and of course, the uh, uh, Homeland Security said it would be too much work uh, given law enforcement's need for easy access to the information. For the uh, for the two D barcode to be encrypted, so so it could basically be skimmed and copied. 
It can be, <laughs> right. It can be skimmed and copied. But, but again, the fact that you actually need to pull it out yes. means that it won't be, they won't be doing that without your knowledge. Now, it does, mean that it, when or... you're at, it does mean that when you're at the grocery store right. and, you're, and if you're showing your driver's license, that it could be, uh, still be uh, skimmed there. Right. So right. certainly so not perfect. But <laughs> better than, than before, yeah. We're talking with Lee Tian, who is the senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, and we're talking about the Real ID Act. Now, why is it there are that privacy people are very concerned about this? What's, what's the real opposition, and don't states have to opt into this? Well, okay, so yeah, let's talk about first about what the privacy groups think about Real ID, and then we'll talk about uh, where the states are coming from. Okay. The, uh, you know, a lot of, of uh, groups have opposed Real ID, and, and really for a number of different reasons. First of all, um, it's, very, it's going to be a very expensive system. That's not, uh, well, that, that we don't think is worth it. And second, we don't think it's going to, to work very well. And uh, third, and, and sort of most important, is that, well, it, we really think that it's a national ID system, which is, is absolutely uh, terrible for privacy. Um, and, and why is that? Why do the privacy people think that, you know, um, we have one country, and I'm taking the devil's advocate, we have one country, if, you know, if you go and you are in one state, you should be able to have the same ID that's accepted everywhere else and without a problem, and this way everything is in one big database, and you could find find me wherever you need to find me, and I can get on any plane without a problem, any any train. What's wrong with that? That's well, what you some know, people are saying. That's, uh, you know, the, the thing about all of that is that's great if, if you trust everyone. And if there are no bad guys, if, there's, if everyone, if no one ever uh, misuses their power, no one is ever trying to do something wrong, then I think, uh, you know, then maybe there's not going to be a problem with that system. But, of course, if you... If men were angels, then you probably wouldn't need IDs in the first place. <laughs> right. So you know the the, uh, the the big big issue with any kind of a strong identification system is that it it's not about the card; it's about the the system. It is you know you have to have a massive database in order to support any kind of a national ID. People think of it as, you know, this piece of plastic uh, with their name and a picture. Um, you know, so what seems like a simple thing that just sort of binds your picture with a name becomes this big, big back-end database. You, you have to keep feeding that database to make sure that it's correct about things. And so... You know, you are going to end up with all sorts of private and sensitive information on every American, which is going to be widely and instantaneously accessible from airlines to banks to police cars and, and you know, everywhere that you can imagine that people will be checking your ID. And as we know in this world, just from everyday identity theft, our databases, are not secure uh, and not accurate. Not accurate, and all of that means that there's going to be this huge, huge system that has a lot of information—some accurate, some inaccurate—that's going to be used to make decisions about what, where you can go, and what you can do. Uh, and we honestly don't think that the that that kind of a system, the benefits of it would outweigh all of the other costs. And you think about when you have one big system like that, it's going to be very... Computer scientists don't know how to make a database of everyone secure. We see those stories about leaked personal information every day. We don't know how to secure the smaller databases. And, and even if you think about the credit reporting agencies... 
we know that there's 70% of those have errors. And 25% of those are enough to keep you from getting a job or buying a house. So if you're going to have this massive federal database, how how are you going to even make sure it's correct? Am I going to have the right to correct it like I do? Well, that's, you know, yeah, those are all the kinds of questions that should come up anytime someone uh, proposes building a national ID system. Um, And, of course, with real ID, these issues were not at all uh, considered. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that the word privacy even appears anywhere in the Real ID Act. Uh, DHS, I'll give them a little bit of credit that once they were stuck with trying to write regulations for Real ID, they put in some, some stuff about privacy and security. But the fact is that the Real ID Act did not address anything about the privacy and security of this massive database or of, of any of the information uh, or the handling procedures of the state DMVs when dealing with uh, Real ID. And in the years since Real ID was enacted, uh, they have not even come up with an architecture, I mean, much less a system, but even an architecture, a blueprint for how the 50 states are going to store and share information and that protect would be needed. and secure it. That's right. You know, that's one of the reasons why I've been working with the California uh, sort of real ID group to try to essentially try to keep them uh, fully skeptical about real ID. And one of the things that I've found is, you know, California is much more concerned with and has much stronger privacy and security uh, positions than a lot of the other states. And what we found in the, uh, in the California state government was a great concern that, well, wait a minute, our data, I think we, we think we do a good job in California of taking care of our data, but if we have to share our citizens' data with you know, every other state or in some sort of a weird federated uh, giant database system, we can no longer be sure. We're not sure that Tennessee or Florida or New York or Maine, that when they do checks on, on Californians, that they're going to treat that information with the, any kind of care close to what uh, happens in California. And even California, look at how many ID problems we had and identity theft we had with our Department of Motor Vehicles. I mean, they're much better now, but we have gone through tremendous problems where 100,000 Duplicate licenses were issued to fraudsters in recent years. So, you know, even though we do a pretty good job and we've gone through some very difficult times, um, what about all of these other states? That's well, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and, and so not surprisingly, it's the, the way that this, that Real ID has, has sort of fared uh, since it was enacted by Congress. It's really been stop and start, stall, stall, stall. The states don't like, most of the states don't like real ID either. At least they don't like all of the, all parts of it. I mean, and so you have at least 13 states right now that actually passed laws saying we're not going to comply with real ID. And a bunch of other states have said, well, we don't want to. And, you know, for the states, you know, most of them don't, aren't so, so privacy oriented. But what they've really focused on is the, the massive cost of Real ID. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about uh, with Real ID is that it isn't just about the card and even the collecting the information, right? The whole the point of Real ID was to be able to say that, gee, if you have a Real ID and it says Mari Frank or Lee Tian, then, you know, you really are Mari Frank or Lee Tian. And so that's this innocuous phrase, identity verification. Right. This is one of the hugest problems. You know, under Real ID, everyone, even if you already have a driver's license, is going to have to present documents to your DMV proving who you are and that you're lawfully present in the United States. So that means you're going to have to come up with a birth certificate or a passport or a certificate of naturalization. You're going to have to prove your SSN. You're going to have to prove where you live. Um, 
lot of that is not done, uh, is not part of, of Cal, uh, say, for instance, the California mm-hmm. DMV process. Right. And it means, this means, you know, one little point, but I think it's, it's symptomatic. That means no renewal by mail or over the Internet. Right. Right, right now, the California DMV does about 46,000 driver's license renewals over the Internet a month. Right. So be prepared for really long lines at the DMV if uh, Real ID goes into effect. So a lot of the states are not happy with this Real ID Act, not only because of the privacy issues, but it's a very expensive act. They don't even know how they're going to implement it. So what about the alternative? Why is Congress now looking at the Pass ID Act, and what is that? Well, the Pass ID Act is is this. So Pass I think of the Pass ID Act as, as just another version of Real ID. PASS PASS ID Act stands for Providing for Additional Security in States Identification Act of 2009. And uh, the current administration position is that Real ID uh, was a start that badly needs to be fixed. And so PASS ID is intended to take away some of the problems with Real ID, but still move us toward a full national ID system. Um, and obviously we are still not happy with the way that Pass ID works. So how would Pass ID be different? And what might it be better? Uh, I don't... Uh, our, the way we look at Pass ID, it's, it's definitely different uh, because it relaxes some of the requirements that are under uh, the Real ID Act. Um, for instance, we were talking about identity verification uh, just a moment ago as one of the things that the uh, Real ID Act uh, would do, and part of that was going to be, you know, you know we talked about how you, the citizen, you know, are going to have to prove who you are to the uh, DMV with a document. Well, you know, if you're actually doing verification, that's not enough, right? If you come in with a birth certificate, they're still going to have to figure out, well, is that birth certificate really you, right? I mean, I have, I have my birth certificate. I'm, you know, it's got some footprint thing on it, uh, and there is no way that a DMV officer is going to be able to look at my birth certificate and look at me and say, yeah, that's you. Yeah, because your foot grew a lot since... <laughs> So, so you know, this is a great example of how something so something really a simple concept. Oh, we want to verify your identity. In practice, uh, can be insane. I mean, I was born in New York. I have a birth. I'm carrying. I have the birth certificate I use is, you know, from 1959 and somewhere in uh, New York City. Right. How is a California DMV here in San Francisco or Berkeley going to verify that? Are they going to call up? you know, a New York office and say, hey, did you guys issue a, you know, a birth certificate in this person's name? Well, oh, yeah, and can you tell me if that's the same person that's standing in front of me? Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why Real ID was broken from the beginning. And even with the Real ID's verification uh, requirements, they depended, they assumed there would be a system for electronic verification of things like birth certificates, which does not exist. That's how stupid real ID is and was and is. Now, some of that stuff they have taken away in pass ID. Pass ID is, is relaxed on some of the stupider things uh, in real ID. So it will be somewhat less expensive and somewhat less uh, onerous, but it would still be a national ID system. And more than real ID, uh, it's going to depend on uh, RFID tags. So, and it's still. Oh, so going they're they're going to do RFID tags in that, even though they, when they were talking about real ID, they were going to do the barcode. Well, so that's that's that, right. That doesn't make any sense. Well, this is this is. Uh, you remember what I said that in the Homeland Security Department there was a great deal of push for RFID. Uh, but then it sort of got derailed because of some bad publicity about RFID. But so the politics st- ended up favoring the, the 2D barcode at that time 
But I think you have to, uh, we all need to think about RFID as something that a lot of companies intend to make money on. And they have been lobbying the Congress and the uh, Homeland Security Department for many years to about how great RFID is and how it should be in credentials. And that's why it keeps popping up. So the way that RFID has been sort of hanging on in the uh, government credentials world, other than in the, uh, the passport, which we weren't able to stop, is that there's something called the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative, or WITI for short. And uh, WITI came in uh, also after, after 9-11 to say, well, we need to have better control of our borders, even within, uh, even like our land crossings and here uh, into Canada and into Mexico. So, you know, I grew up in Seattle, Washington back when I was a kid. You know, you could go across the Canadian border and visit Vancouver, B.C., uh, just with the state driver's license. Right. Now, technically, you need either a passport or some other type of identification that has the security and reliability of a, of a U.S. passport. And so the State Department issues these things called pass cards, and they are also authorized, they're also asking states to produce these enhanced driver's licenses, which are driver's licenses that are a little more secure but contain RFID tags. And that's been happening sort of parallel to Real ID. And they are not, they are another way that a state can comply with Real ID is if you put, if you do an EDL or an enhanced driver's license, then that counts as following Real ID. So Pass ID is going to put even more emphasis uh, on these EDLs. And uh, we are very concerned, therefore, uh, that the Pass ID is going to uh, be fueling the fire for RFID tags and RFID technology uh, even more than uh, real ID. Well, Lee, let me just ask you, we don't have a lot of time. So the, we're talking about what, what we're worried about with the real ID and the pass ID. With the understanding that we are probably going to have something that's enhanced what is it that EFF would recommend in its place if we don't have pass ID? I mean, what would you recommend that we do to kind of satisfy the 9-11 Commission's concerned about identity? Well, I think that the, the number one thing is to, to decouple or break the link between uh, better identity system and a national ID card. Right. Uh, that's, that's the number one thing. We can focus on making IDs more secure. You know, we don't, no one has a problem with making them harder to forge, uh, making them uh, harder to tamper with. Nobody has a problem with taking care of insider fraud. I mean, many, many of the false IDs that are gotten, I and mean, this includes with the 9-11 terrorists, was through bribing insiders. Everything that has to do with the integrity of the license issuing process, that can be done without really any major damage to, uh, to privacy. And I think that's where we get the most bang for our, for our buck. Once you start going down the road of these complex uh, national ID systems with, with interrelated databases, then now you're really going to be running up a lot of privacy problems without any clear benefit. Right. So we're going to send our audience to uh, your website at www.eff.org. And we want to thank you, Lee Tien, who is the Senior Staff Attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And Lee, we're going to send them to your website, and they can read up all about this and become involved if they want to, right? Absolutely. And I continue to support you guys. You're wonderful, and we'll have you back again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Mari. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. 
right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts and you can write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. We hope to have you join us next week. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.